The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon, Volume 5, Chapter 58, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 58, The First Crusade, Part 1. Recording by Claude Banta. Origin and Numbers of the First Crusade characters of the Latin princes, their march to Constantinople, policy of the Greek emperor Alexius, conquest of Nice, Antioch, and Jerusalem by the Franks, deliverance of the Holy Sepulchre, Godfrey of Bouillon, first king of Jerusalem, institutions of the French or Latin kingdom. About twenty years after the conquest of Jerusalem by the Turks, the Holy Sepulchre was visited by a hermit of the name of Peter, a native of Amiens in the province of Picardy in France. His resentment and sympathy were excited by his own injuries and the oppression of the Christian name. He mingled his tears with those of the patriarch, and earnestly inquired if no hopes of relief could be entertained from the Greek emperors of the East. The patriarch exposed the vices and weakness of the successors of Constantine. I will rouse, exclaimed the hermit, the martial nations of Europe in your cause. And Europe was obedient to the call of the hermit. The astonished patriarch dismissed him with epistles of credit and complaint, and no sooner did he land at Bari than Peter hastened to kiss the feet of the Roman pontiff. His stature was small, his appearance contemptible, but his eye was keen and lively, and he possessed that vehemence of speech which seldom fails to impart the persuasion of the soul. He was born of a gentleman's family, for we must now adopt a modern idiom, and his military service was under the neighboring counts of Boulogne, the heroes of the First Crusade. But he soon relinquished the sword and the world, and if it be true that his wife, however noble, was aged and ugly, he might withdraw with less reluctance from her bed to a convent, and at length to a hermitage. In this austere solitude his body was emaciated, his fancy was inflamed, whatever he wished he believed, whatever he believed he saw in dreams and revelations. From Jerusalem the pilgrim returned an accomplished fanatic, but as he excelled in the popular madness of the times, Pope Urban II received him as a prophet, applauded his glorious design, promised to support it in a general council, and encouraged him to proclaim the deliverance of the Holy Land. Invigorated by the approbation of the pontiff, his zealous missionary traversed, with speed and success, the provinces of Italy and France. His diet was abstemious, his prayers long and fervent, and the alms which he received with one hand he distributed with the other. His head was bare, his feet naked, his meager body was wrapped in a coarse garment. He bore and displayed a weighty crucifix, and the ass on which he rode was sanctified in the public eye by the service of the man of God. He preached to innumerable crowds in the churches, the streets, and the highways. The hermit entered with equal confidence the palace and the cottage, and the people, for all was people, was impetuously moved by his call to repentance and arms. When he painted the sufferings of the natives and pilgrims of Palestine, every heart was melted to compassion, every breast glowed with indignation, 
when he challenged the warriors of the age to defend their brethren and rescue their savior. His ignorance of art and language was compensated by sighs and tears and ejaculations, and Peter supplied the deficiency of reason by loud and frequent appeals to Christ and his mother, to the saints and angels of paradise with whom he had personally conversed. The most perfect orator of Athens might have envied the success of his eloquence, the rustic enthusiast inspired the passions which he felt, and Christendom expected with impatience the counsels and decrees of the supreme pontiff. The magnanimous spirit of Gregory the Seventh had already embraced the design of arming Europe against Asia. The ardor of his zeal and ambition still breathes in his epistles. From either side of the Alps fifty thousand Catholics had enlisted under the banner of St. Peter, and his successor reveals his intention of marching at their head against the impious sectaries of Mahomet. But the glory or reproach of executing, though not in person, this holy enterprise was reserved for Urban II, the most faithful of his disciples. He undertook the conquest of the East, whilst the larger portion of Rome was possessed and fortified by his rival Gribert of Ravenna, who contended with Urban for the name and honors of the pontificate. He attempted to unite the powers of the West at a time when the princes were separated from the church and the people from their princes by the excommunication which himself and his predecessors had thundered against the emperor of the king of France. Philip I of France supported with patience the censures which he had provoked by his scandalous life and adulterous marriage. Henry IV of Germany asserted the right of investitures, the prerogative of confirming the bishops by the delivery of the ring and crozier. But the emperor's party was crushed in Italy by the arms of the Normans and the Countess Mathilda, and the long quarrel had been recently envenomed by the revolt of his son Conrad and the shame of his wife, who, in the synods of Constance and Placentia, confessed the manifold prostitutions to which she had been exposed by a husband regardless of her honor and his own. So popular was the cause of Urban, so weighty was his influence, that the council which he summoned at Placentia was composed of two hundred bishops of Italy, France, Burgundy, Swabia, and Bavaria. Four thousand of the clergy and thirty thousand of the laity attended this important meeting, and, as the most spacious cathedral would have been inadequate to the multitude, the session of seven days was held in a plain adjacent to the city. The ambassadors of the Greek emperor, Alexius Comnenus, were introduced to plead the distress of their sovereign and the danger of Constantinople, which was divided only by a narrow sea from the victorious Turks, the common enemies of the Christian name. In their suppliant address they flattered the pride of the Latin princes, and, appealing at once to their policy and religion, extorted them to repel the barbarians on the confines of Asia rather than to expect them in the heart of Europe. At the sad tale of the misery and perils of their eastern brethren, the assembly burst into tears. The most eager champions declared their readiness to march, and the Greek ambassadors were dismissed with the assurance of a speedy and powerful succor. The relief of Constantinople was included in the larger and more distant project of the deliverance of Jerusalem, but the prudent Urban adjourned the final decision to a second synod, 
which he proposed to celebrate in some city of France in the autumn of the same year. The short delay would propagate the flame of enthusiasm, and his firmest hope was in a nation of soldiers still proud of the preeminence of their name, and ambitious to emulate their hero Charlemagne, who, in the popular romance of Turpin, had achieved the conquest of the Holy Land. A latent motive of affection or vanity might influence the choice of Urban. He himself was a native of France, a monk of Clugny, and the first of his countrymen who ascended the throne of St. Peter. The Pope had illustrated his family and province, nor is there perhaps a more exquisite gratification than to revisit, in a conspicuous dignity, the humble and laborious scenes of our youth. It may occasion some surprise that the Roman pontiff should erect, in the heart of France, the tribunal from whence he hurled his anathemas against the king, but our surprise will vanish so soon as we form a just estimate of a king of France in the eleventh century. Philip I was the great-grandson of Hugh Capet, the founder of the present race, who, in the decline of Charlemagne's posterity, added the regal title to his patrimonial estates in Paris and Orleans. In this narrow compass he was possessed of wealth and jurisdiction, but in the rest of France, you and his first descendants were no more than feudal lords of about sixty dukes and counts, of independent and hereditary power, who disdained the control of laws and legal assemblies, and whose disregard of their sovereign was revenged by the disobedience of their inferior vassals. At Clermont, in the territories of the Count of Auvergne, the Pope might brave with impunity the resentment of Philip, and the council which he convened in that city was not less numerous or respectable than the synod of Placentia. Besides his court and council of Roman cardinals, he was supported by thirteen archbishops and two hundred and twenty-five bishops. The number of Mitrid prelates was computed at four hundred, and the fathers of the church were blessed by the saints and enlightened by the doctors of the age. From the adjacent kingdoms a martial train of lords and knights of power and renown attended the council, in high expectation of its resolved, and such was the ardor of zeal and curiosity, that the city was filled, and many thousands in the month of November erected their tents or huts in open field. A session of eight days produced some useful or edifying canons for the reformation of manners. A severe censor was pronounced against the license of private war. The truce of God was confirmed. A suspension of hostilities during four days of the week, women and priests were placed under the safeguard of the church. A protection of three years was extended to husbandmen and merchants, the defenseless victims of military rapine. But a law, however venerable be the sanction, cannot suddenly transform the temper of the times, and the benevolent efforts of Urban deserve the less praise, since he labored to appease some domestic quarrels that he might spread the flames of war from the Atlantic to the Euphrates. From the synod of Placentia, the rumor of his great design had gone forth among the nations. The clergy on their return had preached in every diocese the merit and glory of the deliverance of the Holy Land, and when the Pope ascended a lofty scaffold in the market-place of Clermont, his eloquence was addressed to a well-prepared and impatient audience. His topics were obvious his exhortation was vehement, his success inevitable. The orator was interrupted 
by the shout of thousands, who with one voice and in their rustic idiom exclaimed aloud, God wills it, God wills it. It is indeed the will of God, replied the Pope, and let this memorable word, the inspiration surely of the Holy Spirit, be forever adopted as your cry of battle, to animate the devotion and courage of the champions of Christ. His cross is the symbol of your salvation. Wear it, a red, a bloody cross, as an external mark on your breasts or shoulders, as a pledge of your sacred and irrevocable engagement. The proposal was joyfully accepted. Great numbers, both of the clergy and laity, impressed on their garments the sign of the cross, and solicited the Pope to march at their head. This dangerous honor was declined by the more prudent successor of Gregory, who alleged the schism of the church and the duties of his pastoral office, recommending to the faithful, who were disqualified by sex or profession, by age or infirmity, to aid with their prayers and alms, the personal service of their robust brethren. The name and powers of his legate he devolved on Adamar, bishop of Poi, the first who had received the cross at his hands. The foremost of the temporal chiefs was Raymond, count of Thoulouse, whose ambassadors in the council excused the absence and pledged the honor of their master. After the confession and absolution of their sins, the champions of the cross were dismissed with a superfluous admonition to invite their countrymen and friends, and their departure for the Holy Land was fixed to the festival of the Assumption, the 15th of August of the ensuing year. So familiar, and as it were so natural to man, is the practice of violence, that our indulgence allows the slightest provocation, the most disputable right, as a sufficient ground of national hostility, but the name and nature of a holy war demands a more rigorous scrutiny. Nor can we hastily believe that the servants of the Prince of Peace would unsheath the sword of destruction, unless the motive were pure, the quarrel legitimate, and the necessity inevitable. The policy of an action may be determined from the tardy lessons of experience, but before we act our conscience should be satisfied of the justice and propriety of our enterprise. In the age of the Crusades, the Christians, both of the East and West, were persuaded of their lawfulness and merit. Their arguments were clouded by the perpetual abuse of scripture and rhetoric, but they seemed to insist on the right of natural and religious defense. Their peculiar title to the Holy Land and the impiety of their pagan and Mahometan foes. 1. The right of a just defense may fairly include our civil and spiritual allies. It depends on the existence of danger, and that danger must be estimated by the twofold consideration of the malice and the power of our enemies. A pernicious tenet has been imputed to the Mahometans the duty of extirpating all other religions by the sword, this charge of ignorance and bigotry is refuted by the Koran, by the history of the Mussulman conquerors, and by their public and legal toleration of the Christian worship. But it cannot be denied that the Oriental churches are depressed under their iron yoke, that in peace and war they assert a divine and indefeasible claim of universal empire, and that in their orthodox creed the unbelieving nations are continually threatened with the loss of religion or liberty. 
in the eleventh century the victorious arms of the turks presented a real and urgent apprehension of these losses they had subdued in less than thirty years the kingdoms of asia as far as jerusalem and the hellespont and the greek empire tottered on the verge of destruction besides an honest sympathy for their brethren the latins had a right and interest in the support of constantinople the most important barrier of the west and the privilege of defence must reach to prevent as well as to repel an impending assault but the salutary purpose might have been accomplished by a moderate succour and our calmer reason must disclaim the innumerable hosts and remote operations which overwhelmed asia and depopulated europe two palestine could add nothing to the strength or safety of the latins and fanaticism alone could pretend to justify the conquest of that distant and narrow province the christians affirmed that their inalienable title to the promised land had been sealed by the blood of their divine saviour it was their right and duty to rescue their inheritance from the unjust possessors who profaned the sepulchre and oppressed the pilgrimage of his disciples vainly would it be alleged that the preeminence of jerusalem and the sanctity of palestine have been abolished with the mosaic law that the god of the christians is not a local deity and that the recovery of bethlehem or calvary his cradle or his tomb will not atone for the violation of the moral precepts of the gospel such arguments glance aside from the leaden shield of superstition and the religious mind will not easily relinquish its hold on the sacred ground of mystery and miracle three but the holy wars which have been waged in every climate of the globe from egypt to livonia and from peru to hindostan require the support of some more general and flexible tenet it has been often supposed and sometimes affirmed that a difference of religion is a worthy cause of hostility that obstinate unbelievers may be slain or subdued by the champions of the cross and that grace is the sole foundation of dominion as well as of mercy above four hundred years before the first crusade the eastern and western provinces of the roman empire had been acquired about the same time and in the same manner by the barbarians of germany and arabia time and treaties had legitimated the conquest of the christian franks but in the eyes of their subjects and neighbors the mahometan princes were still tyrants and usurpers who by the arms of war or rebellion might be lawfully driven from their unlawful possession as the manners of the christians were relaxed their discipline of penance was enforced and with the multiplication of sins the remedies were multiplied in the primitive church a voluntary and open confession prepared the work of atonement in the middle ages the bishops and priests interrogated the criminal compelled him to account for his thoughts words and actions and prescribed the terms of his reconciliation with god but as this discretionary power might alternately be abused by indulgence and tyranny a rule of discipline was framed to inform and regulate the spiritual judges this mode of legislation was invented by the greeks their penitentials were translated or imitated in the latin church and in the time of charlemagne the clergy of every diocese were provided with a code which they prudently concealed from the knowledge of the vulgar in this dangerous estimate of crimes and punishments 
each case was supposed, each difference was remarked by the experience or penetration of the monks. Some sins are enumerated which innocence could not have suspected, and others which reason cannot believe. And the more ordinary offenses of fornication and adultery, of perjury and sacrilege, of rapine and murder, were expiated by a penance, which, according to the various circumstances, was prolonged from forty days to seven years. During this term of mortification, the patient was healed, the criminal was absolved, by a salutary regimen of fasts and prayers. The disorder of his dress was expressive of grief and remorse, and he humbly abstained from all the business and pleasure of social life. But the rigid execution of these laws would have depopulated the palace, the camp, and the city. The barbarians of the West believed and trembled, but nature often rebelled against principle, and the magistrate labored without effect to enforce the jurisdiction of the priest. A literal accomplishment of penance was indeed impracticable. The guilt of adultery was multiplied by daily repetition. That of homicide might involve the massacre of a whole people. Each act was separately numbered, and in those times of anarchy and vice, a modest sinner might easily incur a debt of three hundred years. His insolvency was relieved by a commutation or indulgence. A year of penance was appreciated at twenty-six solidi of silver, about four pounds sterling, for the rich, at three solidi, or nine shillings, for the indigent, and these alms were soon appropriated to the use of the church, which derived from the redemption of sins an inexhaustible source of opulence and dominion. A debt of three hundred years, or twelve hundred pounds, was enough to impoverish a plentiful fortune. The scarcity of gold and silver was supplied by the alienation of land, and the princely donations of Pepin and Charlemagne are expressly given for the remedy of their soul. It is a maxim of the civil law that whoever cannot pay with his purse must pay with his body, and the practice of flagellation was adopted by the monks, a cheap though painful equivalent. By a fantastic arithmetic, a year of penance was taxed at three thousand lashes, and such was the skill and patience of the famous hermit, St. Dominic of the Iron Carass, that in six days he could discharge an entire century by a whipping of three hundred thousand stripes. His example was followed by many penitents of both sexes, and, as a vicarious sacrifice was accepted, a sturdy disciplinarian might expiate on his own back the sins of his benefactors. These compensations of the purse and person introduced, in the eleventh century, a more honorable mode of satisfaction, the merit of military service, against the Saracens of Africa and Spain, had been allowed by the predecessors of Urban the Second. In the Council of Clermont, that Pope proclaimed a plenary indulgence to those who should enlist under the banner of the cross, the absolution of all their sins, and a full receipt for all that might be due of canonical penance. The cold philosophy of modern times is incapable of feeling the impression that was made on a sinful and fanatic world. At the voice of their pastor, the robber, the incendiary, the homicide, arose by the thousands to redeem their souls, by repeating on the infidels the same deeds 
which they had exercised against their Christian brethren, and the terms of atonement were eagerly embraced by offenders of every rank and denomination. None were pure, none were exempt from the guilt and penalty of sin, and those who were the least amenable to the justice of God and the Church were the best entitled to the temporal and eternal recompense of their pious courage. If they fell, the spirit of the Latin clergy did not hesitate to adorn their tomb with the crown of martyrdom, and should they survive, they could expect without impatience the delay and increase of their heavenly reward. They offered their blood to the Son of God, who had laid down his life for their salvation. They took up the cross and entered with confidence into the way of the Lord. His providence would watch over their safety. Perhaps his visible and miraculous power would smooth the difficulties of their holy enterprise. The cloud and pillar of Jehovah had marched before the Israelites into the promised land. Might not the Christians more reasonably hope that rivers would open for their passage, that the walls of their strongest cities would fall at the sound of their trumpets, and that the sun would be arrested in his mid-career to allow them time for the destruction of the infidels? End of chapter 58, part 1